Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. afternoon. I hope everyone had a chance to go outside and be intimate with mosquitoes. <laughs> so I said this yesterday in the meetings, uh, but this uh, path is very hard work. And for most of us, the hardest work we need to do in our lives is to actually make contact with our own heart and our own body. And what shuts down our capacity to be connected uh, to our own heart and our own body is not allowing ourselves to have our own experience. We feel angry and we say, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be angry because uh, I'm Buddhist. Or we feel needy, starving for some affection. Oh, but we can't feel needy because we would look too dependent. So I think one of the things that happens in this practice is we learn how to be unconditional with ourselves. How to open up to our own woundedness. And when you can touch your own rawness, your own woundedness, then you can connect with it in other people. When you have wounds or rawness that you can't connect with in your own heart, then when you see it in other people, it's really annoying. But actually, when you start to open to it in yourself, then there's a way in. I see this all the time in my own life. Like, I have so much prejudice. It's like built into my senses. When I walk down the street, I look at certain kinds of people, and I don't look at other kinds of people. And then the more that I see myself operating that way, the more I see it in other people. And then it's okay. 
because I see it in myself and I see it in other people. So that's what I mean earlier when I said, and I think this is true, this is my hypothesis, that when you become more intimate with something, it's less personal. And this is true when you see your own patterns. At first it's like, oh God, I'm like this, you know, I need to change. And after a while it's okay. So this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about uh, how we work with what's hard to look at. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Yes? Michael, you made reference to um, not wanting to feel things at times because we think we shouldn't be feeling that way. Yeah. You made reference to that. But what about not wanting to feel things at times because it's painful in the body and anxiety is such a tightness, you know? So you don't want to feel it. Yeah. Well, let me try and get through the talk and see if I answer it. And if not, I'll respond to it during the question and answer period. Because it's a great question, and it's probably the thing that all of us are working with all the time. Thank you. So, um, I'm, I'd like to begin with a... Oh, that wasn't the beginning. That was the, like, he got to have a prelude yesterday also. I'm going to have a, That was my prelude. <laughs> Um, I'd like to begin with a koan from the Zen tradition. Uh, In Zen practice, traditionally, a teacher gives you a a koan, which is a... The word koan literally means a public record. It's a legal term. And uh, the teacher would give you a record from a story from long ago, and you would work with a portion of that story. Uh, Usually, it's a dialogue, and there's a punchline. Um, so that's one way of working with koans. But another way of working with koans is it's just a great uh, teaching tool because I can offer you a story and you can say to yourself, you know, you can ask, oh, what's cool about that story? And if something about it sticks with you, then you can work with it. So this is a koan from a text called the Mumon Khan, and this is case 38. And the case is called why can't the tail get through? And it goes like this. Wuzu said, It's just like a water buffalo trying to pass through a window. Her head gets through, her horns get through, and all four legs get through. Why can't the tail get through? So I want you to visualize this. So here's the window. Do you know what a water buffalo is? I don't, what's a water buffalo in French? I don't know. A buffle d'eau. Okay. <laughs> well, it, usually in North America, it's an ox is a water buffalo, right? So a water buffalo is trying to get through the window. Her horns come through. Her head comes through. All four legs come through. So the whole body is through. But why can't the tail get through. Why can't the tail get through? So, um, Wuzu, in his commentary on the koan, so usually there's a koan, then there's a commentary about it, and then there's a little poem at the end that someone's written based on their insight. So here's the commentary to the koan. If in regard to this koan, you're able to stay with it and then express yourself 
you'll be able to repay your debts and help other people. This is the promise. If you get this koan, you'll be able to repay your debts and help other people. Well, maybe that's the same thing. And then he says, but if you're still unable to get through this koan, just reflect again and again and again on the tail. And then you'll be able to have insight into the tail. Here's the poem. Usually you give the poem at the end, but I'll give it to you now because it's so good. If the tail squeezes through, it will fall into a ditch. If it squirms away, it will be stuck forever. An itty-bitty tail. Wonderful. The itty-bitty tail is... So in other words, the poem and the verse are both saying the same thing, which is in the koan, so in this story, pay attention to the tail. Like, don't worry about the horns and the head and the big body of the water buffalo. We might think a water buffalo is exotic. We see it painted in calligraphy a lot in Asian art. Uh, but if you ever go to Thailand or uh, in China, a water buffalo is the most utilitarian thing there is and represents the mind, interestingly enough. So the water buffalo is a bicycle in Montreal or a pickup truck in Sutton. If you don't have a pickup truck in Sutton, it would be hard to get, well, maybe not in Sutton. It would be hard to get your espresso. <laughs> but if you live rurally, sorry, I can't name good names around here. If, if you live rurally, you need a pickup truck. So a pickup truck, a, a water buffalo, stands for the utilitarian nature of the mind. You can use the mind to do things. You can make the mind more serviceable, as Pascal was talking about stability before. When you can meet what's arising with stability, this is like the mind of a pickup truck, right? You use your mind to move this over here, get this over here, meet something in this way. The other interesting thing about water buffalo is like any animal, you can't ever know it. You can't really know an animal. If you ever look in the eyes of a cow, you just can't know it. And maybe this is true of human beings. If you, if you really look in the eyes of another human being, maybe what we really connect with is not what we have in common, but that we have no idea. You should do this as a practice. If you, does anybody here live with somebody? In the morning, you should roll over if you actually sleep in the same bed and look in their eyes and think to yourself, whoa, <laughs> what, where have I landed? You know? And then you can begin your day like, like that. And the mind is like this too. You think you know your mind, but if you keep sitting and you keep sitting and you keep sitting, the bottom will fall out. And you'll see that the mind is unknowable, actually. Unknowable. So, this is the water buffalo. And the water buffalo is also like your practice. We practice for a while and good things happen. Uh, apparently, the research says you will have less stress 
you will transform your depression and anxiety and you will be kinder. And you know, I think all this is true. Uh, when you sit, you get kinder. It actually becomes cool to just be kind. This is all really true. But even so, all this gets through the window. But there's always something that doesn't get through. Does anybody ever have notice this in their life? Like you can have a big insight, your life really changes, and then a month later, there's a tail stuck somewhere. <laughs> I have this with my partner Karina all the time. Like we'll be having like everything will be so good in our relationship, and then she'll like bring something up. <laughs> and at first I really have a resistance because I think things are so good why are you bringing this up now and she'll say oh this it just seemed like this was a good time to you know and this happens on retreats too I'm sure Pascal can, can talk about this too on silent retreats whenever someone comes in for an interview especially on longer retreats and they say things like I've really found peace I'm really quiet now I always think to myself here we go. Because <laughs> usually when there's some stability, the shaft of awareness can actually drop deeper. Right? It's like when your relationship is finally stable, then it's strong enough to actually go deeper. Right? So the head gets through, the horns get through, four legs get through, but the tail can't get through. Something can't get through. And, of course, it can't get through. This is how I think of nirvana. Nirvana is being able to be with all the things that can't get through. Without defensiveness. Because when we're spiritual, we're idealists. And maybe we hear this koan and we think, well, how do we get the tail through? But the title of the koan is not how to get the tail through. The title of the koan is the tail can't get through. Why can't the tail get through? Why can't the tail get through? I've always loved the term nonviolence rather than peacefulness because it's a negation not violent. In other words, how do you practice nonviolence in a context where there's going to be violence? There's going to be harm. Ahimsa. Ahimsa comes from the root han, which means is where we get the English word harm. And in Greek, when you put ah in front of a word, it means not. But actually, in Sanskrit, it's a little different. It doesn't mean not. It means not having the intention. So ahimsa means not having the intention to cause harm. Given the fact that there's a tail, and the tail is a culture of violence. So it's not idealistic. Does this make sense? Gandhi translated nonviolence as... Um, Non-cooperation. Did I say that the other day? I think I did. I've been translating it differently lately. Lately, I've been translating nonviolence as 
speaking up for what has no voice. To me, this is how I think it would be helpful to think about nonviolence, given our ecological circumstances. So that's the tale. The tale is recognizing that despite your ideals, there's going to be harm. Are you getting the picture of the water buffalo? So, in the 13th century, a wonderful Zen master uh, spoke on this topic, a Zen Zen master named Dogen. Uh, His basic idea... um, Well, I'll read you what he says. He says, When practice does not fill your whole body and mind, you will think that it's sufficient. When practice does not fill your whole body and mind, you'll think it's sufficient. When the practice fills your body and mind, you'll understand that something's always missing. When practice really fills your body and mind, you'll understand that something is always missing. I went to visit once a a great Zen teacher and maverick who actually disrobed and became a clown named Bernie Glassman. And uh, I went to visit his bakery in New York City. He created this bakery where he didn't know anything about baking. But he saw that all these homeless people needed jobs. And he's Jewish, so he said, let's try and make the best cheesecake in New York. So they started a bakery, and they hired only people who were homeless. And they gave them jobs. And then as the bakery made money, they started buying all the real estate around the bakery and housing all the people who worked there. It's an amazing mandala he created. And every day during, and he was a Zen teacher, so every day during the line, there were, a bell would go off and you'd go up to the office and you'd present your koan to him. And he had everyone in the bakery working on koans. But anyways, I asked him one time, I said, you're doing a crazy thing. Like, do you think that you're really going to solve the problem of homelessness just with this bakery? And he said, yes. <laughs> And this was his intention, is he was going to solve homelessness in New York City. And then he said, you should choose battles that are small enough to win and big enough to matter. And that really stayed with me forever. You should pick battles that are small enough to win and big enough to matter. Well, you don't have to look very far. Because you can see your own mind on this retreat, and you can see that there's work to do. Look in your close relationships. You can see that there's work to do. The tail's always there if you're paying attention. So I want to offer you three practices for working with the tail that you can work with in your own mind in your heart, in your body, but also in your relationships and in your engagement with our political reality. So the first practice is not knowing. 
And the definition of not knowing is giving up fixed ideas about yourself and the world. Whatever you encounter, your first moment of contact can be not knowing. Because you don't have to be the person in this moment that you were last moment. It's one of the core teachings of the Buddha. You don't have to be who you are today in the way that you were or performed yourself yesterday. So first step, not knowing. Giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others and the world. So could you imagine this? When your frustration comes up? The first thing you meet is frustration without all the knowing. Without all the knowing. Second practice is bearing witness. Bearing witness. You can't bear witness to something if you know about it already. That's not bearing witness. So the bearing witness is what I'm talking about is intimacy. But the, the term I really like is the bearing. It has to do with patience or sustaining attention. You can't stay with something if you're coming at it with knowing. You have to practice not knowing. Does this make sense? Yeah. My, I'll keep going unless it's a burning question. Just bearing. It's bearing. Oh, bearing. Oh, bearing. Bearing witness. Uh, And is not knowing clear? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I have no idea. So, um, I don't want to say that not knowing is not knowing anything. Not knowing is just knowing your viewpoint and being able to put it in brackets and put it to the side. And then this makes space for bearing witness. Um, at Center of Gravity in Toronto, for many years, there was a practice that we all did as a community, which I called the five-minute practice. And the practice is, whenever you're engaged with something and you start getting agitated, you can feel it in your body, in the tongue, in your fingers, Whenever you get agitated, stay with it for five more minutes. This was our practice. And my, my partner, Karina, she has a tattoo uh, right here on her hand by her thumb, which is the number five, but in, in Sanskrit. So she remembers this. She's much better at it than me. And the practice is, whenever you're worked up or you're in a conversation, you know, and oh, you just really want to jump out? You just stay for another five minutes. Right? Not knowing, bearing witness. I feel like a lot of meditative communities stop at this phase. Not knowing, bearing witness. If I were to critique meditation sometimes. 
there's a Slovenian philosopher who uh, I follow very closely named Slava Žižek, who's been on a tour of American universities critiquing Buddhism. Some of you may have seen his talks on YouTube. And um, he's saying that he calls Buddhism the utopia, the, the, um, utopia, the, what's the drug called? It makes you sleep. The opiate of the masses. And he says that Buddhist meditation is, and mindfulness, he says, is the perfect way to get people to turn inward and get really, really calm so that nothing changes in the culture, in the structure of the culture. This is his critique of Buddhism. Now, I think he's right, and I also don't agree. Um, but I think we need to listen to his critique. And so that's why there's a third piece. It doesn't just stop at not knowing, bearing witness, because that would be passivity, which is like, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling. The third piece is taking loving action. Okay? But it's not loving action that's rehearsed. So here's the key to this piece. Taking loving action means when you can approach a situation without knowing, which is a practice, and you can stay with it in a sustained way, a creative response will arise out of the conditions of the situation. In other words, the response comes from the other side. It doesn't come from the CEO, you know, up here at the top. Most of the time when we have problems, we take the elevator up to the penthouse, you know, and try to fix everything up here. I do this all the time. I was taught to do this all the time. But what we're saying here is when you start with not knowing, you're coming down. Bearing witness, and then a response will come that you can't, you couldn't have rehearsed. I was really involved with the Occupy movement. I know some of you have mentioned that, that you, you found out about me through that. And, you know, when Occupy really got going in New York, the the amazing thing about... Well, first of all, one thing about when it got going in Zuccotti Park was the first day I went, I just felt like I couldn't leave. And a lot of people say this, that they, they, they got involved and there was something happening where they couldn't leave. People who are not activists, even. And over time, what I started to realize was Occupy was a cultural exhalation where it was the first time, it seemed, on a, on a large level, that people were exhaling and actually not knowing. And the media were there saying to everyone, what are your demands? Does everybody remember this? What are your demands? And I thought the media was like the ego, coming in and going, okay, okay, come on, what's next, what's next? Say what you believe in. And in the meetings at the beginning of Occupy, one of the things that was discussed a lot was, it's not time to make demands, because we don't know how big this thing's going to get. And also, we just need to, 
start to gather the stories that need to die before we create a new story, which is a demand. And the media couldn't figure this out. All they wanted was demands and violence. And that's when I realized that Occupy was not a protest, it was a movement. Because there were no demands, and not only no demands, the violence wasn't there that the media needed, you know, to figure it out. Because you can't have a, you know, you have to have violence. So um, I would love to talk more about this, but... Uh, what I found in the Occupy movement was it was the first time I was with uh, a diverse group of people that was that large where it was okay not to know what was going to happen next. That was a really beautiful thing. And one of the things that taught me was that in considering social change, what's more important than the big ideas are just little ideas. We don't need more ideology. We just need little ideas. Like, how do we feed these people? How do we deal with the bathrooms? Where are we going to get our food? And just start that way. Because those little ideas start to network together. You don't have to figure out the whole thing. So one person's activism might be staying at home and writing really good poetry. Which is an art that seems to be going extinct. Someone else might tie themselves to a tree. Somebody else might use uh, breastfeeding as their practice. And maybe there's a kind of activism you've been doing that you haven't even recognized as activism. And maybe there's something you've been doing for the last 10 years and it doesn't work anymore. So don't hold on to that either because maybe it's changing. Maybe before it was really extroverted, and maybe now it has to be a little smaller. So it's really important also that your notion of getting involved can be malleable and can change. Otherwise, your personality then has a very big tail, which is your persona. Well, I'm this kind of activist. Last night, when we talked about our anger and our fear and so on, I really connected with the whole notion of all of those energies happening in a field of hope. And what I want to suggest is that the practice of not knowing is a practice of hope. It might be the most true practice of hope any of us can do, even though it's so hard. We need hope without optimism. Optimism is the toxic belief 
that everything's going to turn out fine. Uh, hope is the motivating energy that doesn't know what the fruit will be, what the fruit of our actions will be. Hope is motivating. And hope is the belief that there's still some wiggle room that change is possible. Hope and despair tend to go together. And uh, the problem with both hope and despair is that they're both contagious. Despair is just as contagious as hope. But despair is really a time waster. It's a dead end. And if your despair goes on for too long, you will buy a large screen TV and start watching sports. Uh, sorry to the sportsmen. Uh, the point is, is that despair doesn't make any demands on you. It's a lazy mind state. But hope demands something of us. Like a lot of people say, oh, I care about that. You know, I care about the election. And I'll say, well, what are you doing? I'm voting. So we, it's, not, it's not that we... We, we don't lose the level of caring about things, but we have to care for things, not just about them, you see. And that's hope, is that there's a possibility of change, but we just don't know where it's going. If you meditate, you don't even know what's happening in the next moment is completely invisible. How can you know? And the last thing I want to say about despair is that despair comes more easily when you're living in comfort. It's more easy to despair when you're comfortable. You know, all of us want to be comfortable. You can even see it in mind states, like always going for like the comfortable fantasy. So, even when you get a house, you know, the Buddha has this saying, a house gathers dust. You get a house, you get a good relationship, you get a good couch, you know. And then, even when things are pretty smooth, sometimes the comfort of your life, the privilege and comfort of your life, can actually start to kill you. They can eat away at relationships and your creativity. So this is all to say that hope, uh, I think, without optimism, is very radical. And it comes from the practice of not knowing, bearing witness, and taking loving action, creative action. Your Buddha nature is your capacity for imagination, to reimagine your life from a different perspective.
I wanted to read you a quote from uh, one of my favorite writers uh, who lives in the Bay Area. Her name is Rebecca Solnit. She says, The North American tradition seems to focus its activity on the expose, the telling of the grim underside of what we know. The food is poison, the system is corrupt, the leaders are lying, the war is failing. There is a place for this, but you can't base a revolution on bad things that the status quo forgot to mention. You need to tell the stories they're not telling, to learn to see where they are blind, to look at how the great changes of the world come from the shadows and the margins, not center stage, to see where we're winning and that we can win something that matters if not everything, all the time. So, I don't think we need a revolution. A revolution replaces one power structure with another power structure. You can see it in Cuba, you can see it in Egypt, you can see it in Syria. It sure is exciting when it's happening. But we don't have too many to look at that are really that inspiring. Instead of revolution, I think what we need is embodied rebellion. Moment-to-moment -moment rebellion. If you're distracted, if you're distracted, and you have a little bit of low self-esteem, this is a perfect place for companies to sell you shit. Little bit of distraction, little bit of low self-esteem. You're a perfect target. So being able to pay attention and have a discerning mind is a political practice. Mindfulness is a practice that goes against the grain of consumerism. Because you can pay attention and you can be intimate with what's there without acting it out in unconscious ways. But it has to be embodied, not just an idea. And that's why it's so important you're here, embodying this practice. Rebellion's not going to happen on Twitter. It has to happen in your body, in relationships. With your words, and your breathing, and your thinking, and your hands. If you see this, you will be able to repay your debts and help others. Because the tail can't get through. And as long as you pay attention that some part can't get through, then you're awake. You know, if you have a clean moral conscious, conscience, you don't understand karma.
The more that you wake up, the more sensitive you become to your own body, your own needs, your own desires, your own life, you're unconditional with yourself. But the paradox is, the more you wake up, the more you feel the pain of others. The more sensitive you become to the pain of animals, rivers, forests, and other human beings, your parents, your grandparents, the restrictions in their lives. And you can't get out of that paradox. The more you wake up, the more you become sensitive to other people's pain. And the only response is to roll up your sleeves and go to work. Don't tell anybody, but this is the secret of happiness. Serving others. You can't get happy by yourself. That would screw up the entire real estate <laughs> economy. You can't get happy by yourself. So I want to add one more thing to this and then I'll conclude, which is that because the more you practice, the more you will feel the pain of others, it's so important that you know how to relax. Because if you can't relax, other people's pain becomes more and more vivid and it will overwhelm you. Everyone here, I'm sure, has had this experience. So it's really important that we look after ourselves and the people around us. I never like the term self-care. I like to think of it as we care, where we find ways in our community to look after each other. Pascal leads quite a big sangha in Montreal, but you probably wouldn't know that teaching is a lonely job. So as he takes care of you with the Dharma, it's really important that the community also takes care of Pascal. Otherwise, we all think of ourselves like, oh, I'm the teacher and I have to go take care of myself, so I'm relaxed, I need to go to Bodega or whatever it's called for the day. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Bota Bota. Bota Bota. <laughs> but we, we can do better than that. The whole Sangha should go to Bota Bota <laughs> together. So mindfulness is a practice of embodied rebellion. To me, this is much more interesting than ideas of revolution. Because it includes our own inner life, which needs so much work. And then we can go into the world and make peace. And in this country, that term needs to be rejuvenated. 
You can't be free when we're putting so many people in prison. The United States has more people in prison per capita than any country on earth. And Canada has more people in mental institutions per capita than any country on the planet. We can do better than that. And it starts in your own life, your own community, your own heart. So, thank you for listening. I think that uh, everybody here is doing the work of embodying these values. Because it's not going to come from somewhere else. We're the people that we've been waiting for. So thank you. <laughs>